Tito Room. Tomorrow night, Perry Longo's having a poetry workshop, and you're invited even if you don't know how to rhyme. Um, second announcement, somebody left this camera in the restroom. We don't know whether it was in the men's restroom or the ladies' restroom. I think it was found in the men's restroom. And now, as another, another innovation for the Writers' Conference, we are giving you a triple play tonight. I am hereby opening the program. I will now turn it over to my superior officer, who in turn will turn it over to an inferior officer who, who will put on the speaker. Mr. Conrad? Very brief. I want to welcome, uh, we have some distinguished uh, guests. Uh, the novelist Joanna Barnes is with us, sitting over there. And uh, Julia Child, who uh, I taught her everything she knows about scrambled eggs. And does she admit it? No, she does not. Those of you who are lucky enough two years ago to hear Julia it was a wonderful program. We'll get her back. Um, I just wanted to read one thing. Here's how to start a biography, I think. Samuel Golden was not born on August 27, 1882. Nani. For most of his life, he swore it was his day of birth, but both the name and the date were fabrications. He promulgated other distortions of the truth as well liberties he took for dramatic effect. He spent years covering his tracks, erasing those details of his origins that embarrassed him. The reason he revealed to a psychotherapist at the pinnacle of his career was that ever since childhood, he, quote, wanted to be somebody. Starting at an early age, Samuel Goldwyn invented himself. Pretty good way to start a biography. And here to tell us about the man that wrote that, is Ted Berkman, no slouch himself at writing biography and a marvelous teacher whose uh, workroom is crowded every day, Ted Berkman. Too many tall men at this conference. It's, uh, the mics constantly have to be adjusted. Um, I asked Barnaby to let me make this introduction, exercising my status as a senior guru, surpassed in vintage here only by Paul Lazarus, who, as everybody knows, was chief of staff to President James Madison. <laughs> this is becoming a biennial event for me. Every couple of years, Scott Berg, having immersed himself for most of a decade in the lonely tunnels of creativity, emerges into the sunlight of bestsellerdom, and I have the privilege of introducing him at the conference. Last time, Scott threw his unique biographical spotlight on a great editor, Max Perkins. Now he brings us the singular saga of Sam Goldwyn and wraps up within it an absorbing history of all Hollywood. 
This is a balanced portrait of a man and a milieu that have taken and earned their share of brickbats, but have also made some memorable contributions. Sam Goldwyn, for one, gave us, among other pictures, Wuthering Heights, Dead End, and The Best Years of Our Lives, all classics that will endure. I knew Goldwyn slightly during my first movie writing days at United Artists. Whatever else may be said of his fixations, his eccentricities, and his sometimes astonishing assaults on the English language, he was ahead of his counterparts in one important respect. He recognized writers as the germinating force, the indispensable element in film. He hired the best talent he could get his hands on, even if, if as a titan of what is majestically referred to as the industry, he could display a cavalier indifference to details. At one point, Goldwyn negotiated the services of Louis Bromfield, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Rains Came. According to studio rumor, possibly apocryphal, when Bromfield turned up for duty, Goldwyn stuck out his hand in greeting. Of course you realize, he said briskly, we're only hiring you for your name, Mr. Bromberg. <laughs> Good biography, and this is a fine one, has elements of inspiration and also of compassion. It reaches beyond its subject to embrace the entire human family, thereby improving the prospects for our planet. In our particular era of photo opportunities, hype, image making, good biography performs a special service. It penetrates the facade to expose the reality beneath. Once again, Scott has done his job with painstaking precision, working from the bottom up, laying in the foundation first like a skillful architect. He makes us see and feel Goldwyn the man, the skinny, desperate, determined immigrant, before we get anywhere near Goldwyn the legend. You may not be crazy about Sam, but you'll feel his presence, soak up his personal aroma, understand his drives. Scott calculated quite rightly that once he had us hooked on his central character, the glitz and glamour and savage infighting of Hollywood would take care of itself. Not that there's any shortage of fascinating revelation and delicious anecdotes in this book, all carefully documented. You can dig in anywhere and come up with nuggets. Its 22-page index is crammed with intriguing names. I found myself cheating now and then jumping forward to gather snippets about Ring Lardner Jr., my one-time roommate who survived the Hollywood witch hunt and went on to win his second Oscar with M.A.S.H., and Alexander Corda, for whom I labored in London. I discovered that one of my mentors, Edmund Goulding, the director of Grand Hotel and Dark Victory, had made the private screen test that sold David Niven to Goldwyn. What else do you say about a book that's already won more cheers from the literary world than a, world, than a Grand Slam home run in the World Series? You get out of the way and turn over the podium to Scott Berg. Thank you. Thank you. I was having such a good time listening to that, I didn't want to come up here. Huh? <laughs> but let's get down to business. Um, you know, what I thought I would talk about... Uh, Tonight are uh, 
three of my favorite subjects, uh, Samuel Goldwyn, a little about Max Perkins, uh, and me. Uh, n not necessarily in that order are they my favorites. Um, but uh, uh, it, it occurred to me, uh, actually it occurred to me about three years ago, that there are not many people who do for a living what it is I do, which is write biography. And I thought I might tell you a little about a biographer's life, this biographer's life, what goes into the actual making of these books. Uh, it really hit me about four and a half years ago when the Library of Congress invited America's 50 full-time biographers to come to the library for three days and just talk to each other. Uh, and it had occurred to the librarian of Congress at the time, Daniel Borston, that we probably all enjoyed reading each other's books, but we were so immersed we had never met each other. And wouldn't it be great if we could all just gather for three days, have no responsibilities except to cross-pollinate? Uh, and it was an absolutely thrilling time. Well, I think for all of us, what was, um, what was most amusing to me is uh, what, what they encouraged us to do was to meet for a morning session and an afternoon session with no real agenda. But we sat parliamentary style. There was a big table between us, and we sat on, on opposite sides of the table. And as each of us wanted to say something, we, we stood and introduced ourselves by our own names and by the subjects we wrote about. So James Flexner would stand up and talk about, about uh, uh, George Washington and, and old Dumas Malone, then 90, had been working for 55 years on Thomas Jefferson. So, you know, he would say, I mean, well, we were also thrilled to see him. We all thought he had died 30 years earlier. So it was, it was just so great to have him out there. Um, you know, and Barbara Tuckman would get up to, you know, because of, of General Stilwell and, and uh, and I, I dare say uh, there was no more schizophrenic biographer in the room than Wah uh, getting up uh, as Maxwell Perkins, the great literary editor, and Samuel Goldwyn, um, Mr. Malaprop, basically. Uh, and there they all were. Uh, it was an absolutely thrilling time because most of us who do what we do, spend five, ten, uh, in the case of Mr. Malone, 55 years uh, writing your books. Uh, and uh, it was just nice to know it's okay <laughs> to take the time and get the book right, write the book you want to do. And that while you may be insane, on some level, you're not alone. Uh, uh, I am going to, um, I think, to talk about what I've been doing for the last nine years, which is what it's taken to write my Goldwyn book, I really do have to go back to the beginning. Um, a few of you heard me speak two years ago, and so I, I will just repeat a minute or two. Um, I have to begin prenatally. Uh, I, I, I promise to take you through elementary school very quickly, um, but, but to understand my story, if not appreciate it, I, I do have to go back to my mother's ninth month of pregnancy with me. Uh, she was, at the time, this was in Westport, Connecticut, my mother then, great with child, great with great child, I like to think, was, uh, 
was uh, reading Life magazine. And she was reading in that issue the first serialization of the first biography that was ever written on F. Scott Fitzgerald. This was Arthur Meisner's great book, The Far Side of Paradise. Just an absolutely spellbinding book. And here was an excerpt in life. And my mother began to read this and got so carried away that she spent the last four weeks of her pregnancy reading nothing but Scott Fitzgerald novels. And during this time, my mother made a, a twin-pronged vow, uh, A, that she would give birth to a son, and B, she would name that son Scott. And my mother, being a woman of her word, delivered on both counts. Uh, to this day, I'm extremely grateful she wasn't reading Charlotte Bronte. Uh, uh, my life is confused enough as it is. God knows the havoc this would have wreaked. Now, uh, as, as promised, uh, we are leaping through fascinating years where I learned how to spell and, and do multiplication tables. Um, but as promised, we go up to the 10th grade uh, to uh, Palisades High School, uh, Mr. Drury's period five English class. Uh, you see, biographers think different from most people. Uh, we hold on to minutia, what my, what my mother now calls garbage. Um, uh, and actually, for Mr. Drury's A10 uh, English class, uh, what we had to do was the obligatory author's report on an American writer. Um, I tell the following to let you all know, let your children know, let your grandchildren know, it is never too late. I was a television idiot. Um, I really did not read too much up to age 15. Uh, I, I really was the television father. The point of the story I'm about to tell you is quite simply, the pen is mightier than the antenna in the, in the end. Uh, took me a little while to realize it, but now I embrace this notion. Um, I really didn't know about whom I was going to write because I was hard pressed to name a great American author. My mother said, why don't you write about uh, F. Scott uh, Fitzgerald? Well, I said, yeah, now, now who is that guy? You know, I've heard about him. Now, now, in fairness to me, this was 1965. It was before the Gatsbyization of America. Uh, this was before we had Gatsby shoes and Gatsby Melmac and before every city had a Gatsby restaurant with a Zelda room and, you know, I mean, and, and I asked my mother what she could tell me about Fitzgerald. She said, I won't tell you anything. I'll show you. And my mother, who is not a saver of things, went rummaging through some cabinets and produced those gray tear sheets that she had taken out of Life magazine back in 1949, and she said, here, read this. And I took those 10 pages and read them and got completely carried away, completely swept up in the Fitzgerald myth as she had, well, not quite as she had, but, and she said, well, if you think this is good, why don't you try reading the book? Well, my God, a whole biography. Oh, God. 
And she gave me The Far Side of Paradise, and I read that and was fascinated. And she said, if you think that's good, why don't you try reading some of Fitzgerald's novels? And I did. I went downstairs to the shelf, and there they all were, lined up in a row. And I did what any intelligent television idiot does. I grabbed The Great Gatsby, because it was the skinniest of the four Fitzgerald novels, 140 pages. I figured I could, I could deal with this, and I've only missed two or three shows if, uh, if it's not that good. Well, this was uh, 1965, around October. I read The Great Gatsby, and the light, the green light, went on. Uh, by the time I got to, you know, so we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past, everything inside me just, I mean, the floodgates just opened, and everything came pouring out, and I finally got what this was all about and what writing could be all about. And I then just began devouring Fitzgerald novels one after another. Uh, Beautiful and Damned, Tender as the Night, Last Tycoon, This Side of Paradise. Ah, This Side of Paradise. I spent the rest of my high school career reading everything I could find of, from, by, and about F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, I became so irritating about it that the, the teachers at Palisades High used to have me go around to English classes just to give lectures on Fitzgerald. I later realized, obviously, it was a way they didn't have to teach for a day. But I adored this, absolutely adored it. And now it is senior year in high school, time to apply to college. There was really only one university I seriously considered, and that was the subject of this side of paradise, Princeton University. And I sent off for my Princeton application. I hope, I hope question 11 on the Princeton application is what it was back then, in 1966, 67, which was, why do you want to go to Princeton? <laughs> and I began to answer, and I gave the most flowery answer you've ever read. Oh, you have the greatest faculty and the student-faculty ratio in the library and blah, blah, blah. Dot, dot, dot. And then I said, the truth of the matter is, I have a Fitzgerald problem. <laughs> and I said, which was the truth, I sleep with this side of paradise under my pillow every night. I have never been to New Jersey, big deal. Uh, <laughs> but, but I could draw maps of Princeton. And frankly, if you don't accept me, I'm coming anyway <laughs> to make a pilgrimage. The Princeton admissions office made it very easy on themselves. They accepted me. And in September of 1967, I showed up on what was a storybook campus to me. I had just never seen anything so exquisite in my life. I was on campus about 48, but maybe 36 hours before I made my way to the Princeton Library. And there in that library was the rare books and manuscripts room. And within that room, were 150 blue boxes, which contained the papers. Time. 
Fitzgerald really had become a god at Princeton. These boxes had every scrap, anything that Fitzgerald ever looked at. And everywhere you went on the Princeton campus was some shrine. This was Scott Fitzgerald's first dorm room. This was, this was the first wall Scott Fitzgerald got sick against. Uh, <coughs> this was where Scott Fitzgerald took his first English class. This is another wall Scott Fitzgerald got sick against. Uh, and there, uh, among these papers, were Scott Fitzgerald's IOUs, Scott Fitzgerald's liquor bills, Scott Fitzgerald's manuscripts, Scott Fitzgerald's liquor bills. There were, there were, to be serious, <laughs> imagine what this was like for me. There were in these boxes the original pencil draft of The Great Gatsby, the first typescript with his handwritten corrections, the second typescript. Then there were a series of letters to and from Maxwell Perkins, this phantom-like editor who worked over the manuscript. And then suddenly, there's the manuscript changing before my eyes. There are the galleys, a few more suggestions from this phantom editor, and then the final book. This was just incredible for me. I mean, Fitzgerald was there in the room. Well, in fact, he was. They had one uh, slight digression, one great thing that had a little bit There was one tape recording that Dr. Bell was in the late 30s. He and the Hewlett-Brand had gone out of the Santa Monica Pier in the University of Georgia Voices. And Scott Fitzgerald went in and recited to a night again. some sense how rich, wonderful, and voluminous this collection is. The greatest thing I found among those papers, though, were the letters between Fitzgerald and Max Perkins, about whom I knew relatively little, about whom nobody knew terribly much, because he really was this great ghost-like figure in American literature. I had read all the Fitzgerald biographies at that point, but I'd find Perkins on page 1, 101, 156. I mean, he'd just sort of be scattered throughout. Nobody had ever really put together a portrait of this guy. But I could see through these letters that here was a man who literally discovered... became Fitzgerald's best friend, his marriage counselor, his psychiatrist, his father confessor, his editor. And I learned that with Fitzgerald, Max Perkins literally redefined the job of book editing. That before Max Perkins, a book editor was someone there 
when a writer finished his manuscript and really corrected the spelling and punctuation, prepared it for the typesetter. With Max Perkins, I learned going through this correspondence. Perkins believed the, the time a writer really needs an editor is before the book is done, even if it's just somebody at the other end of the mailbox. Uh, somebody to say, keep going, you're doing fine, yes, I'm here for you. Or somebody to say, you know, I really don't like that title, Tremalchio at West Egg. What about The Great Gatsby instead? Uh, as I found in these letters. Uh, somebody to say, yes, if you just do this, maybe Gatsby would, well, this was absolutely fantastic. Now, here I am, literally spending every afternoon in the Princeton Library going through this stuff. A great stroke of good fortune. Two wonderful things then happened all within a year. The Scribner family, which had been going to Princeton since the 1100s or something, had just given all of their archives to the Princeton Library. This is to say, sitting in the library now, much of it uncatalogued, were every letter Maxwell Perkins and all the other editors at Scribner's ever received from any of their authors, and a carbon copy of every letter Max Perkins ever sent out. And much of it had, was still uncatalogued. Nobody had been through this stuff. Now, the second great stroke of great fortune that happened while I was there was that a man named Carlos Baker who had been teaching, uh, teaching English since the 30s there, had just completed his biography of Ernest Hemingway. He had been spending seven years on the project. He had really been giving up a lot of teaching time. The book was done. It was just published, getting great reviews. To this day, I still consider it not only the great Hemingway biography, but one of the great American biographies on any subject. And he was very eager to get back into the classroom, to get reacquainted with students. And I decided it's time Professor Baker and I met. And I introduced myself to him, told him I was this great Fitzgerald enthusiast. Oh, yes, I've heard about you. He said, you're the one who's trying to get Fitzgerald's dorm room, right? You're the one who's... Now, at this point, I've cleaned up my act a lot now. I was wearing bow ties in those days and parting the hair in the middle and calling everybody old sport. And, oh, God, it was just insufferable. But... <coughs> But it worked on old English professors like Carlos Baker, uh, who took me under wing, although, as he said, I really don't like Scott Fitzgerald. I can't stand him. And I said, well, that's, but Ernest Hemingway is my, my other favorite. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, I did a lot of work uh, under Professor Baker on Hemingway as well. And I was getting more and more interested in this Max Perkins character. And one day, I went to the library, and I said, I am going to put aside this entire day to look up everything I can about Max Perkins. This was a perfectly good way not to go to class, I thought, for a day. Uh, I found shockingly little in the Princeton Library. Well, I will tell you one thing I found. There was one volume at that point. This is now 1968, 1969. There was one book, and I recommend it to all of you. It's called Editor to Author. It was a collection of Max Perkins's letters, a, a selection, actually, of about 150 
of his greatest letters to his greatest writers. There was one copy of that book in the Princeton Library. And I realized, my God, there is a great book to be written about Max Perkins. I will write his biography. Then what I did was, I checked that book out for two and a half years <laughs> so that nobody would ever see that book. Because I knew if anybody stumbled across that book, they'd go out and write the Perkins biography, just like that. Now, it didn't occur to me there was a copy in the New York Public Library, here in Santa Barbara, the University of Alaska, but you know what? It worked. I went back to Professor Baker, said, Professor Baker, I have a great idea. I am going to write a book on Max Perkins. He said, Scott, that is a great idea. He said, I will tell you, and, and these words, I, I hear them. This is just what he said. He said, Scott, I have spent the last seven years writing about Ernest Hemingway, whom Perkins also discovered, nurtured, befriended, and so forth. Max Perkins, to me, is as much a mystery today as he was seven years ago. He is the great enigma of American letters. Why don't you solve that riddle? I said, that's great. So it is a book, isn't it right? And he said, yes, I think it is. I mean, I'm sure it's a book. The question is whether you can write that book. Uh, he said, pulling out my transcript and seeing a really good, solid B minus average at that point. <laughs> I mean, a strong B minus, you know, I mean. Uh, and he said, why don't you try writing a senior thesis on Max Perkins first? since you have to write one of those to graduate from this university. And if you're still interested, then you can turn that into a book. Great, great, great. Uh, I'm racing out the door to get going. And he said, Scott, before you go, before you go, have you ever read Thomas Wolfe? I said, oh, no, 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 no. Thomas Wolfe, my father was always trying to get me to read Thomas Wolfe, but he wrote those thousand-page books. I've never read any of those things. He said, you cannot possibly write about Max Perkins if you haven't read Wolf. So I then did something I don't recommend to anyone. I went back to this library, which has my name on it now, and I checked out all four volumes of Thomas Wolfe. <laughs> Look, Homeward Angel, A Time in the River, The Web and the Rock, You Can't Go Home Again. <laughs> went back to my dorm room. Nobody saw me for two weeks. I don't remember what happened in those two weeks. I'm sure I ate. I'm sure I went to a class or two. All I remember is waking up, reading Thomas Wolfe until I fell asleep, and waking up again. And two weeks later, I went to Professor Baker's office, and I rapped on the door. Oh, Professor Baker, God, how can anyone be a writer? Thomas Wolfe has said it all. And Professor Baker said, Scott, come back to me when you're 21. <laughs> now, I'm going to jump ahead just to tell you one quick story. I went on to research all these people, needless to say, and I found in the thick of the Thomas Wolfe Max Perkins letters, and again, there was Max Perkins discovering, standing up for editing, befriending Thomas Wolfe, as he did with these other great writers. Uh, but there was a letter somebody wrote to Perkins late in his life 
saying, Mr. Perkins, do you think Thomas Wolfe will always be read? And Perkins replied, so long as there are sophomores in college. And I, I thought, oh, God. Now, some of us, thank God, are forever sophomores. Uh, and, and it still works. Well, um, I have much more I could say about Max Perkins, but if you want to hear that, you should have been here two years ago. Um, I will say this. I did write my senior thesis on Max Perkins. When I graduated, Princeton gave it a big prize, and most important, they gave me four pages of single-spaced notes on how to transform my thesis into a book. What they didn't tell me when I graduated was it would take another seven years to do that. Uh, but I did. I spent 1971 to 1978 writing a biography of Perkins, focusing primarily on Fitzgerald, Hemingway, and Wolfe. But as I continued my research, continued my writing, I realized that the life of Max Perkins went on to include not just those three great writers, my three favorites of the century, but indeed Ring Lardner, James Jones, Taylor Caldwell, Nancy Hale, Marcia Davenport, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, I mean, the entire list of the great American writers between the two world wars. The book was published in 1978. Uh, it sold very well, won a prize, and won me a phone call. I got a phone call in September of 1978. I was in New York at the time, and the call came from Samuel Goldwyn Jr., who asked if I would be interested in writing the life story of his father, the great motion picture producer, Samuel Gold. I said, thank you very much. I'm touched, I'm honored, I'm thrilled, I'm pleased, but no thanks. I don't do Hollywood books. I said, surely you've read my first book, Max Perkins. Surely you know I am a literary biographer. <laughs> Not even literary, literary, you see. I'm, I'm, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm talking like Chesterton or somebody, do you know? I mean, <clears throat> and he said, well, yes, I have read the book, and frankly, that's why I'm asking you to write my father's biography, because I think it is something more than a Hollywood book. And he said, frankly, the day my father died, I took all of his papers and I locked them up. They have been under lock and key for four years. Nobody has ever seen them. He said, even I don't know what was in those papers, but I know they go back to 1913 when he produced the first feature film in a town called Hollywood. And that film was called The Squall Man. He said, I don't know how, mu how much is in there, but I know this was my father's first film. And he hired to make that film a, an out-of-work actor bumming around New York named Cecil DeMille. I know they all came out to Hollywood together, they made this picture, and my father lived until 1974 and was fairly active until his last few years. And I think it's more than just a Hollywood book. Are you interested? It took me four years to make this call. Why don't you take a few months to think it over? I said, well, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll think about that. I went to the New York Public Library that afternoon and began to look up everything I could about Goldwyn, about early Hollywood, about late Hollywood. I found what I still consider a terrible dearth of what I considered well-written, well-researched books on the movies. Yeah, here, here. Uh, 
books that are basically that, that are based on primary source material. I found the big problem is Hollywood, a t as a town, as an industry, as an art form, was was built on hype. It was built on press releases from the very beginning, and those just kept getting recycled. So that even when you would pick up a big, thick, serious-looking biography, it was in fact it was a rehash of old columns from Variety. And nobody had ever really examined these moguls in particular, these six or seven East European Jewish immigrants who, I realized, all came to this country within five years of each other, as I got deeper into it, whom I realized all came from the old country from within 500 miles of each other, all came to America in search of this dream, went into this infant industry where, in which they not only believed in this American dream, but they began to manufacture it and then peddle it, not just to the country, but to the world. And I began to think, you know what? Maybe there is something to the life of Sam Goldwyn. Maybe it is not just a Hollywood book. And I called up Mr. Goldwyn and asked if I could come meet him. And I figured because he was, after all, a Hollywood figure, he had exaggerated about these papers he had. So I went out to LA, where in fact I, I had grown up, and I met with Sam Goldwyn Jr. for two days. I found him to be a wonderful source while I was interviewing him. I found that he was terribly conflicted about his father. He had a great love-hate relationship with him, but I found that he talked about his father extremely candidly and objectively in, in, a, in ways I really hadn't seen before on, on my Perkins book. And I'd, re I'd done 150 interviews on that book, but I never saw anyone talk about a relative that close, that cleanly, that squarely. And I thought, this is good. This is good. I, I like this character. He said, before the second day ended, you really have to meet also my half-sister. I didn't know he had a half-sister. He said, yes, the truth of the matter is, my father was married before he was married to my mother. He was married to Jesse Lasky's sister. Jesse Lasky, also one of the great founders, the great forgotten founder of Hollywood, in fact. Jesse and his wife, Blanche, I'm learning, had a brother-sister vaudeville act. The two of them played the bugle together. And they would get out there on stage and they'd play they play bugle calls. This, I am told, brought the house down back in 1980. Um, the problem is Blanche hated the horn. She wanted to get out of show business. And so she married a glove maker who became a glove salesman she had met named Samuel Goldfish, who was, yes, our boy, Sam Goldwyn, in an earlier incarnation. And they were married for several terrible years and finally, Goldfish, the glove salesman, said, you know what, I'm sick of the glove business. I think I'd like to get into the movie business. Everything Blanche didn't want, she's suddenly right back into showbiz. And indeed, the marriage went sour. And there was this child, Ruth, whom I learned from her half-brother, Sam Goldwyn Jr., spent most of her life disowned by her father. He said, I don't know the story, but you must meet Ruth. You must find out the story. He said, she'll tell you a very unpleasant version of it. I'm sure it's not as bad as she said. Well, I immediately want to see her now.
It was one of the most extreme cases of emotional child abuse I had ever heard. And this interested me a great deal. Not that I was dying to write Daddy Dearest, um, but it was interesting because she too told her story, I felt, with great integrity, great objectivity. And based on these two days I had spent with Junior and with Ruth, I began to hear a fascinating story about this guy, Sam Goldwyn, born Shmuel Gelbfish, who ran away from Warsaw at age 15. And I began to think, I'm getting wonderful stories here without ever talking about the movies. And this ultimately is something the biographer looks for. If you strip away all the glitz, if you strip away the career, if you strip away the famous supporting cast, do you have an interesting life to talk about? And I felt with Samuel Goldwyn, I did have that. I was hearing a fascinating story of a son, this teenage runaway, of a husband, of a father, of a sibling, and I thought, yes, this could be a book I'd like to write. But what about these papers? I want to see these papers already. And Goldwyn Jr. gave me the combination to a vault in the middle of Hollywood and I went over to this vault, literally turned the combination, big door, pulled open a heavy leaden door, and walked into a room about 15 by 20 feet, flicked on a light. The room was completely surrounded with file cabinets. On top of each file cabinet, scrapbooks, photographs everywhere, posters, scripts. And here were all these file cabinets. I literally just started grabbing drawers open. Just pulled them open. Honest to God, first drawer I opened, 1928, pulled out a folder, C, 1928, the letter C. Just pulled out a letter from that folder, and there was a letter from Ronald Coleman to Samuel Goldwyn. The jazz singer had just opened, and Ronald Coleman is writing to Sam Goldwyn, Dear Mr. Goldwyn, please don't put me in any of those talking pictures, not with my voice. Ronald Coleman, of all voices. And the letter went on, I really have to be the judge of my own instrument, he said, and I just don't think I am properly suited for talking pictures. Opened up another drawer, 1952, telegram from Lillian Hellman to Samuel Goldwyn thanking him for his very brave posture during the McCarthy hearings and so forth. He, Goldwyn had, in fact, taken a very brave stance. And here was Lillian Hellman congratulating him, thanking him. Opened another drawer, 1936, an entire folder this thick of gin rummy IOUs from Harpo Marx, Herman Mankiewicz, Irving Thalberg, Jack Warner. Opened another drawer of menu books very elaborate notebooks kept by Mrs. Goldwyn of every dinner party the Goldwyns gave, who came, what they ate, what they drank, so that the next time the Gary Coopers came to dinner, they were not served that same old saddle of lamb they had last time. The next time Field Marshal Montgomery came to the house, whom, whom Goldwyn called Marshal Field Montgomery, <laughs> his his martini would be, would be waiting at the door when, when he walked in. Well, needless to say, you have an idea of the, the kinds of material I now had at my fingertips. I realized 
I really could tell the entire history, not just of Samuel Goldwyn's career, but of the American motion picture industry through this life, these papers, and the people I might do interviews with. But in, in fact, when Sam Goldwyn, when Sam Goldfish, left the glove business to go into the movie business, he made an appointment in New Jersey with Thomas Edison. And he went down to New Jersey and literally met with Edison. The last appointment recorded in Goldwyn's uh, appointment uh, book was a phone call from Warren Beatty. I thought, I've got movies from Thomas Edison to Warren Beatty? This is amazing. I, I was about to say Thomas Edison never had it so good, but what I really mean is Warren Beatty never had it so good. Um, but there they all were. I went to Sam Goldwyn Jr., said, yes, 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 I would like to do this book. Very desperately, I would like to do this book. Uh, there is a one thing, however. You must sign a piece of paper that says anything I find in those files, I have permission to put in my book. I can use anything, I can quote anything. In essence, you have no control over my book. What they call in Hollywood, final cut. You ain't got it. You don't have first cut, you don't have final cut. I said I would like to give you the book before it goes to the typesetter so that you can correct any mistakes I might have made, but I'm not interested really in your opinions at that time. I would love to hear your, your stories, I will interview you, but it is my book. It took Sam Goldwyn Jr. one year before he would sign that piece of paper. I have to thank for his signature, Merle Oberon, uh, whom, sad to say, I never met. But I talked to her on the telephone one day when I was starting to get into this book, and I was waiting, I was, I was just dying to get going on the book. I figured I want to line up some of the people I'm going to interview. Merle Oberon was, was Goldwyn's biggest female star. He really all but discovered her. Alexander Corda did that. Uh, but they made several important pictures together, in, including Wuthering Heights, perhaps Merle Oberon's greatest role. And I called her up and said, uh, I'm about to do this Sam Goldwyn book. I would like to interview you. Uh, this was October of 79. She said, yes, by all means, as soon as your paperwork is all signed, come to me. I'll be happy to talk to you. Why don't we talk the first of the year? Merle Oberon died on Thanksgiving. The next day, I called up Sam Goldwyn Jr. and I said, look, that was a very important source. I should have talked to Merle Oberon. Now, whether you want me to do this book or whether you want anyone else to do this book or not, doesn't matter. Get somebody on the book already. Sign the piece of paper. People are dying. And that day, he signed the document and I got to work. Now, I immediately realized the important lesson here, that people are going to die. Those papers are not. And while those magnificent archives were sitting there, I really had to put them off. And I had to start my interviews. I did what biographers do. I made a list of all the people I wanted to interview, put them in order of age, and anything I may have heard about their health. <laughs> so if I suddenly read in the National Enquirer of somebody's heart attack, or something, they, they suddenly go from 80 up to number 10 on my list. On, on the Scott Berg hit parade, you see. I mean, <clears throat> and I did my interviews. <clears throat> and how lucky I was to do them and do them as I did them. Within that first year, I interviewed the great director, George Cukor, who 
He's most famous for his Katharine Hepburn movies, I would say, uh, uh, Little Women, The Philadelphia Story, uh, Pat and Mike. Uh, but most important to me, he was Francis Goldwyn, the second Mrs. Goldwyn's best friend. And the more I got to know him, the more time I spent with him, the more he revealed a fascinating story, which was that he and Mrs. Goldwyn were very much in love with each other all their lives. They met in summer stock in the early 20s in Rochester, remained faithful friends to each other all that time, probably would have married each other, except for one wrinkle. George Cukor was homosexual. And it was at a time when you couldn't even breathe it. And so they just remained these great friends. Well, again, here was a great life story. It had nothing to do with the movies, but who these people were. Something that could really help make my book breathe. And at the same time, I could trace George Cukor's film career in my book. I met William Wyler. Uh, for my money, picture for picture, perhaps the greatest American director who ever lived, uh, and Sam Goldwyn's most important director. Did Best Years of Our Lives, The Little Foxes, Dead End, Wuthering Heights, uh, among uh, another three or four, too. Not only were they Goldwyn's greatest pictures, not only do I think they were Weiler's greatest pictures, but the more I talked to him, the more was revealed to me a great father-son story between Goldwyn and Weiler. And again, I thought, Without even talking about the movies, I have some great characters to write about here. Met King Vidor, another great director who did Sam Goldwyn's classic Stella Dallas with, with Barbara Stanwyck. And we had this splendid interview, and as I was about to leave, he did Stella Dallas in 1937. This interview was 1981. As I'm about to leave, he opened up his desk drawer. He said, I want to show you something I wrote right after I finished making Stella Dallas. And he pulled out a yellowing scrap of paper, and he handed it to me, and it had four words on it. No more Goldwyn pictures. <laughs> and here it was, 1981, still holding on to it in case that call comes in. <laughs> By God, he wasn't about to do another one for that goddamn Sam. But I thought, wow, the power of Sam Goldwyn. Interviewed Henry King. Uh, now, now here, I, uh, Henry Hathaway, John Houston I wanted to interview. Now, I've just men mentioned to you more than a half dozen of the great American directors who literally created the movies as we know them. And they are all dead now, I'm sorry to say. I spent many hours with Lillian Hellman, uh, with, uh, with Lucille Ball, with Joel McRae, with, with Avril Harriman, with, uh, with William S. Paley, all of whom were great friends of Goldwyn, or great acquaintances, or colleagues, all of whom loved him, all hated him. Uh, 250 interviews I did over the next two years. 85 of those people I interviewed are now dead. Happy to say all their voices are in my book. They're all there. They are like a giant chorus, and I am Toscanini, bringing in voices. I want you to hear this one now. I want you to know less bassoon, less bassoon. Be quiet, Lillian. Uh, uh, this was obviously the most fun part of the book. Then I went back to these incredible papers, spent two years going through them. I did them in chronological order. I've given you a clue what was in there, the contracts, the telegrams. I began to find great correspondence between Robert Sherwood, Ben Hecht, uh, Sidney Howard, uh, as well as Lillian Hellman, all writers who worked for Sam Goldwyn. This, this illiterate, this Polish immigrant carrying on 
literary conversations. There was a whole folder of correspondence between Sam Goldwyn and Shaw. Bernard Shaw. And I found a letter Shaw wrote to somebody saying, they're all lunatics in Hollywood, but Sam Goldwyn is the most interesting inmate in the asylum. <laughs> and I thought, that's, but that's great. That's the kind of tentacles, how far reaching this man was. Then, after two years of going through that stuff, two years of interviews, then I had an entire room full of photographs. I, I mean, there were so many photographs, I, I can sum it up for you, that in one small corner of this one room was a small notebook of about 100 photographs of Sam Goldwyn, Charlie Chaplin, and William Randolph Hearst of one weekend they all spent together. Just the three of them, snapshots in bathing suits, cavorting Marion Davies here, and then, you know, uh, some young, 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 young girlfriend of Charlie Chaplin. Uh, <laughs> And, there, and as I went through this notebook, I remember saying to myself, I could publish just this, this photo album, and I won't be able to use one picture, because nothing is important enough compared to what I have. Now, while all this is going on, I am also running Samuel Goldwyn's movies. And during the course of all this research, of course, I learned that Sam Goldwyn was perhaps the greatest independent producer in Hollywood. He helped start Paramount Studios. He helped start MGM Studios. He helped United Artists Studios get off the ground. He got kicked out of all three of them. He had a terrible temper. He had an awful personality. Great drive, could start the studios, but he couldn't stay around. They kicked him out. And then in 1923, he set up his own studio, Samuel Goldwyn Productions. And over the next 50 years, he produced 80 motion pictures by himself independently, which meant every time he wanted to make a movie, he went to the Bank of America, took out a loan, put up his house, put up part of his studio, put up his last two movies as collateral, sweated it out until that movie paid back the debt. No stockholders, no partners, no parent company. Samuel Goldwyn. So when it said, Samuel Goldwyn presents, that's what you got. You got a little piece of Sam Goldwyn's house up there in these movies. This interested me too. Now, while I'm watching the movies, the first time I ran each of these pictures, not giving you the, the famous ones, but I could throw, there's also a, a Ball of Fire, Pride of the Yankees, uh, Dark Angel, I've mentioned Stella Dallas. There were a couple of important silent pictures he did. The first time I ran them was really for the sheer pleasure or pain of watching these movies. Of those 80 pictures Sam Goldwyn produced, 40 of them if you're lucky, you've never heard of. And if you're luckier, you will never see. Not good. If you ever see The Unholy Garden with Ronald Coleman, it's going to be on The Late Show. Don't wait up. <laughs> you don't want to stick around for this one. You really don't. Go to bed. But there are another 40 that are, that are fun and watchable. There are 20 that are really memorable, and 10 of them that are genuine, bona fide film classics. I then began to watch the movies for the technique. What went into them? What, if anything, did Sam Goldwyn as producer contribute? What did the director do here? How did the cinematographer film it? What, what did the music add? What did the script do? That became interesting to me. The third and the fourth time I ran these movies was to try to understand a bigger picture. Watching Wuthering Heights, is there anything we can learn 
from that movie about 1939, when the movie came out. Does that movie tell us anything about what people were going for then? Why did Sam Goldwyn insist on a happy ending to that movie, where Kathy and Heathcliff meet walking to heaven? What did that tell us about audiences then? Or the best years of our lives? What did that tell about America after the war? And then I began to think, what are those movies perhaps, if anything, tell me about Sam Goldwyn himself? Why, when Sam Goldwyn was 90 years old, why night after night did he go alone into his screening room and run Wuthering Heights, sit there alone in the dark, and cry his eyes out? Was there something in Heathcliff, that rough stable boy who went off to America to find his fortune, came back to seek his vengeance on, on everyone who knew him when? Was that Sam Golden? I don't know. It's, but it's there. These are the things I was looking for. Now, while all this is going on, I'm also doing the field work that goes into the putting together of a biography, real old-fashioned gumshoeing. Uh, Sam Goldwyn, I knew, sailed out of England on a boat. Uh, Sam Goldwyn Jr. told me this magnificent story of how when his father arrived in America, this is a story Sam Goldwyn told a hundred times, the boat came into New York Harbor and he saw Lady Liberty standing there and he burst into tears and when he got off the boat, he kissed the ground. Well, I went to Ellis Island. I went through all the records of every immigrant who came into this country. There was no Sam Goldwyn. There was no Sam Goldfish. There was no Shmuel Gelbfish. This guy did not exist. This guy did not come in through Ellis Island. It suddenly occurs to me, Sam Goldwyn was an illegal alien. And he sneaked in through Canada. So I began to go through the Canadian-British records. I went to London, went to the public records office at Kew Gardens, spent four days going through the passenger lists of every boat that shipped out of the United Kingdom in a three-year period, page after page, going through these lists, and bingo, there's our boy. Found the ship he sailed on, the date he arrived. Now from there, I could look up the weather, what it was like that week. Yes, there was a terrible storm on the Atlantic that week. Yes, there was a snowstorm when he arrived. So when you read in my book about this terrible crossing he made, I'm telling you, it was a terrible crossing. I found a book that had been published the following year that described that boat he was on. So I could repaint for you, for me, what the, the crossing was like down to what they ate on the ship. Now this is the way I choose to write biography. Some biographers are far more speculative a lot use the word perhaps every other sentence. Um, a lot give you those perhapses as facts, but leave out the word perhaps. I don't do that. Anything that is in that book, I verify. And I tell you at the back of the book, in fact, where it came from. I then went to Gloversville, New York, spent a month up there, where Sam Golden was a glove maker for all those years, and found, found records of his having been there went through old glove-making journals that were written from those days, found people writing about Sam Goldfish, this glove-maker, this glove-salesman, found, found addresses where he lived, found a woman Sam Goldwyn had proposed to back in 1909. And also, biographers depend on the kindness of strangers. And I will just tell you one very brief Santa Barbara story, which is one day I received a letter from these people over here, the Barragonas, Marjorie and Tony Barragona. Marjorie wrote me a letter 
saying my husband Tony had a mother who was a secretary for Samuel Goldman. And while she was a secretary, she used to write letters to her best friend back east, talking about this tyrant, this Sam Goldman she was working for. Would you be interested in reading those letters? And I came up here and spent the day with the Barragonas and these fantastic letters, which were almost like journals of 1925, 1926, when Sam Goldwyn was really at his peak in the silent era, and found, found that, that Tony Barragona's mother had developed a crush on this cowboy named Frank Cooper. And she kept begging Mr. Goldwyn to put Frank Cooper into the movies. And indeed, he finally did, and Frank changed his name to his agent's hometown in Indiana of Gary. And there it was all recorded in these letters. Well, you get lucky finds like that every now and then. Well, that's the stuff of the biography. Anyway, I went home to L.A. and I wrote my book. My first draft was 2,000 pages, more than you or I want to know about Sam Goldwyn. When you buy a biography, it seems to me, what you are paying for is someone who has gone out and gathered information about a, an interesting life through whom you can tell a bigger story. I think I had that with Sam Goldwyn. I could tell more than just the life of Goldwyn. I could tell the life of American motion pictures. I could tell, I felt, the life of America. I think you are also demanding, when you plunk down your money, some structure on that life. I think it should not only be well-structured, but well-written. That nonfiction should read as, as, as good as fiction that it should be as dramatic, the language should be as interesting, the story should be as compelling. Because whether I'm writing biography, whether I'm writing general nonfiction, or whether I'm writing a novel, I am basically telling a story. And that story should interest from the start to the finish, from Samuel Goldwyn was not born on August 27, 1882, to the end of my book. If it doesn't hold your interest, if it is just a collection of facts, I feel I, as a biographer, have failed. The presentation is important. And as I told you, my school of biography believes in, as much as possible, the anonymity of the biographer. There are psychobiographers who take their subjects and put them on the couch and psychoanalyze them. There are these highly speculative biographers of other sorts who don't use Freud but use, use other techniques and, and try to guess what was going on in the character's mind when a certain event was going on. I don't subscribe to that. I like to read it, but I don't like to write it. I think my job as a biographer is to present the truth as closely as I can find it based on the facts as I have found them, and to tell those facts in a compelling fashion. Then I'm cutting all this down because I think it should be a size that is at least portable, <laughs> or at most portable. Uh, and I trimmed my 2,000-page book down to about uh, oh, 1,000 pages of manuscript. I then began working with two editors at Alfred A. Knopf, one Robert Gottlieb, who now edits The New Yorker magazine, and another a woman named Victoria Wilson, both of whom did superb editing jobs with me, always in the Perkinsian manner, suggesting what I might do to my manuscript, not insisting. Then I gathered photographs. If you are an author like me, you then get into things like what kind of paper are they going to use? What kind of type are they going to set it in? What does your jacket look like? 
in the end, a book comes out. My book was uh, published officially in April. There were, there were books in March. And it has really been a, a thrilling experience. Uh, I think, above all, I wanted to prove to myself, and I, I feel I have done that at least for myself, that one does not have to be writing about literature to write a literary work. And I think my book is a serious, though entertaining, I hope, book about motion pictures. Now, I have on my word processor two quotations. One is something the great Max Perkins wrote to Thomas Wolfe. It is something I have subscribed to for many years, and I leave you, well, I almost leave you, with this great thought, and it's simply this. There could be nothing so important as a book can be. And the more I look back on how I fell into this whole racket in the first place because of a book my mother read, uh, when I look how I've spent the last 18 years of my life, uh, when I look at the fact that here I am asked by you all to speak to you about books, I, I, I subscribe more than ever to that great sentiment. I have a second quotation on my word processor, too, which comes from that other great philosopher and wordsmith, Samuel Goldwyn, who was indeed famous for his Goldwynisms. But he said something, I think, very compelling, and it's a great lesson, not just for everybody in general, but I think for writers in particular, because it's a hard life. It's hard work. And this is something Sam Goldwyn said to the great Billy Wilder after Billy Wilder opened a movie and it flopped. And Sam Goldwyn said this, Billy, you gotta take the sour with the bitter. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I've, I've babbled on a bit, but I'm told I could uh, take questions if you have them or want them or not, or, or go. Yes. The question is, how did Sam Goldwyn Jr. like the book? On the whole, Sam Goldwyn Jr. liked the book very much. As he said to me privately and as he has said publicly, uh, he thinks it is the book I had always described it would be, that it is the book on Hollywood and there are a lot of things he wishes weren't in that book. Uh, and then he quickly added, but those are the things that make the book believable. Because people, and he was talking specifically about what it was like for him to grow up, about his parents' marriage, and his point was, he said, readers will get to that and see it is obviously the truth. And that if you told the truth about those things, you've clearly told the truth about Hollywood. So that, that was Sam Golden Jr.'s reaction. Yes, sir, in the back. Well, clearly there was something in the porridge that, that these Yiddish mamas served, served to their boys. There was something in the chicken soup. Um, it's something I do try to trace in the book. I mean, it's hard to put one's finger on it. Rather, the way it's hard, you know, why is it that, that the great uh, 19th century inventors in this country all came from the Connecticut River Valley? Um, and yet I try to show they all came from these absolutely horrid origins, perhaps as horrible as a background can be. They all fled the czar. Um, I think there was also something of the Jewish storytelling tradition. They all did arrive in this country at the same time, 
And all, interestingly, what I also didn't mention, they all went into, into crafts. They all went into trades with their hands. Glove makers, furriers, tailors. And they were all men with great drive, great get up and go, who believed in the American dream and wanted something more. And Sam Goldwyn, for one, realized he was never going to become a mogul in the glove business. There were already six or seven moguls running that business. But here was this new business of movies without entrepreneurs yet. And I think the light bulb went on for all six of those men. And they all jumped into it at that same time. So it is largely, largely coincidence, but it is largely similar backgrounds. Also, you know, motion pictures held a very peculiar appeal for the immigrants because you could watch those stories and you didn't have to speak English. In fact, you could learn English watching them and you could learn about America. You, you, all you had to do was watch Mary Pickford and you learned about America, even though her name was Gladys Smith and she was from Canada. Um, any, anything else? Yes. Carlos Baker, uh, whom I'm sorry to say did not live to see the Goldwyn book, was a, was a great booster of my Max Perkins book. Um, he, was, he was proud. <laughs> and nothing made me prouder than, than that. And I think one of the happiest, if not the happiest day of my life, was the day I handed him his copy of that book. <laughs> No, th this was the one crummy part of what I did. I couldn't take the papers out of the vault. So I literally showed up to work in this room with one bulb hanging down, a collapsible card table and chair. And I sat there for two years. Needless to say, vaults don't have windows. Um, one door in, one door out. And that was it. And because it was so horrible, I figured I want to get out of here as fast as I can. I just showed up at 9 every morning, uh, and I'd bring a bag lunch and an alarm clock. Because at 5.25, they closed up the building. And if you weren't out of there, you were in big trouble. Uh, so that's why the clock. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Well, I've got one down here. Then, and then you. The question is, what is next? Uh, and the question is, I don't know, and nobody leaves this room without coming up with two good ideas. Um, <coughs> my interest is in writing five or six biographies of 20th century American cultural figures, each one a kind of wedge of the apple pie, through whose life I can tell, again, the bigger story. Max Perkins allowed me to do 40 years of American literature. Sam Goldwyn let me do 60 years of American motion pictures. Um, I, I hope perhaps to have a business figure, perhaps a political figure, perhaps a Broadway figure. Uh, and again, a life big enough that it can be a lens on a, on a larger world. Barnaby Conrad, oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> yes, well, keep, keep him coming, keep him coming. Uh, yes. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, there is the common lament. We don't have a Max Bergens here present day, and it is true. I don't think we do, but I want to say a thing or two about that. Um, Max Perkins flourished in what I call the publishing world. Today, it's the book biz. 
Um, the reason we don't have, quote, Max Perkins's today is, is the industry is entirely different. It is an industry. It is just that. At the same time, I have spent a lot of time, mostly on my Perkins book, when I was interviewing the old timers at every publishing house. And I found people at every house in this country who no doubt edit books as well, who line edit as well as Max Perkins did. Whether they had his character, I don't think they did, his style, whether they had his overall ability, talent, genius, perhaps not. But I'm telling you, if you ferret them out, you will find them. Great editors do exist. They are underpaid, they are overworked, but they are looking for thrilling writers. They really are someone who goes after them. They want to work with a writer. They want, they want to discover as much as Max Perkins did. So they are there to be found, but it, it behooves the, the writer to find them, I think. One more question, Cork? Did you have a, or did you have a question? I already asked my question. Okay. One. Well, the question is, who replaced Max Perkins at Scribner's? And the answer is nobody. And in fact, for a long time, his office sat empty. And it took two or three editors, uh, Burroughs Mitchell, Charles Scribner himself, and a man named Wallace Meyer, who split up the Perkins list, and none of them ever did as well with any of the writers, in, in fact. Uh, and frankly, uh, the House of Scribner's has really fallen on hard times in recent years, and, and I think it's largely because there was no replacement. And God knows they had the greatest backlist in publishing history. They had all those Perkins books. But alas, there was no suitable replacement. Closed. It's uh, yeah, and the and the publishing house has been absorbed by Macmillan. Yeah, we've got a line out there waiting for.